Good morning. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. Well, last week we began our study through the book of Esther, uh, an overlooked book of the Bible, I believe. Many things within it are misunderstood. Its lack of explicit mentions of God or faithfulness to him is pretty confusing. But what we learned last week is that the empire of the world, whether it's the 5th century BC, the Persian Empire, or the 21st century AD in the kingdoms of this world, those two things are not that different. We learned last week that we, as the people of God today, face a similar power, similar temptations, similar threats. Last week, we met King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, according to your translation, and his capricious, immature, Uh, kind of random reign over the empire. We learned that he really only does what people tell him to do, that he's not a a true leader in and of himself. And we learned that he needs a new queen since the old one just wouldn't obey him. So we learned about the empire's power, but his wife Vashti refused him and he deposed of her. So this week we will meet the two main protagonists of the story, Mordecai and Esther. And I use the hand quotes protagonists on purpose because what we like to do, I was telling somebody this last week, what we like to do when we go to scripture, and rightly so, is we want to try to find that person or that event or that theme that points us to Jesus. And we look for these kind of moral heroes, guys like King David when he kills Goliath on behalf of the kingdom. But what we know about guys like David and guys like Abraham or people like Esther and Mordecai is that they are not pure heroes. They are broken and flawed. We will see in this chapter and in this story that like us, Esther and Mordecai are sinners. And yet, in spite of past failures and current problems, God is using them. Not that he is able, he is using them to accomplish his good purpose. So on the outset, we need to see that the empire of the world for an exile, somebody who would claim the name of Jesus or in those days claim the name of Yahweh, the empire of the world seems really bleak for an exile. Someone who knows that this world is not their home, they feel weak in this world. We feel taken advantage of. We feel overlooked. We feel even humiliated and persecuted at times. We are not the first to feel this way. People of God throughout history have felt this way. They have always been marginalized, taken advantage of, overlooked, persecuted, maligned, ignored. So let's continue setting the stage for this story. If you're thinking about the book of Esther as a whole, Esther 1 and 2, last week and this week, are the introduction. We're setting the scene. We're meeting characters for this grand story. So let's read together Esther chapter 2. We're just going to read a couple of verses together. Um, So let's see, starting in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. 
Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we come to this story that is bleak. We come to this story that is full of sin and wickedness and weakness, compromise. We come to this story this morning seeing a person who is caught between two worlds, faithfulness to you or the pleasures of this world. And Lord, we we throw up our hands in the air and say, God, that's us. We are tempted. We are weak. We are frail. The enemy around us is so strong, but God, you are omnipotent. And you know all things. and You're bringing together all things for good. So Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning from Esther chapter 2, would you open our eyes to behold your glory, to see your ordinary providence at work, that you are orchestrating all things towards your good ends, that you are acting even when great harm seems to be done, even when great wickedness seems to happen. As Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God intends for good. And you preserve us and sustain us in our life. You are King of grace. We ask that you would help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So you see on the screen, we've got four W's. We're alliterating very well this morning. So the title of this message is Wickedness, Weakness, Winning, and Waiting. We see, those are going to be our four points this morning, uh, but we're going to see kind of this setting the stage, like I said earlier, of what's going to happen in the story of Esther. So first, if you're taking notes this morning, we see the empire's wickedness. In the first four verses that we just read, Esther 2 begins with King Ahasuerus remembering, huh, I don't have a queen anymore. I don't have a wife anymore. That's a bummer. I mean, like, it's so like nonchalant for him. He, he remembers after his fury and his rage, oh, yeah, I like exiled her from the kingdom, basically. So like normal for King Ahasuerus, someone has to tell him what to do. The young men around the king influence him and inform him of an idea that they can, that they can accomplish. These young attendants concoct a wicked scheme. They say to the king, hey, let's find every beautiful young woman, every beautiful young virgin in the kingdom, make them a part of your royal harem, which is basically a glorified prison for women. And every night you can enjoy the company and pleasure of a different girl until you find a woman suitable to be your queen. Remember, by suitable, we're thinking in terms of the world. We're thinking in terms of King Ahasuerus. So by suitable, we mean beautiful to look at, pleasing to the king, and submissive to his will. Obviously, the king likes this idea. What wicked king wouldn't like this idea? To be surrounded by this kind of debauchery and pleasure, to be reminded of his own power and authority. But what we need to see in this wicked empire's scheme is something that we can learn for ourselves, and that is this. The empire of the world, either... Persia or now, lays claim to the lives of its youth. Future plans, not important. Bodies, only fit for pleasing the king and his kingdom. In the Persian Empire, this was not a voluntary contest. If you were attractive, you were entered in. As we'll see later with Esther, they were taken. They didn't volunteer and go, they were taken. And in case you think it's only the women who are objectified in this kingdom, historians tell us that hundreds of boys 
every year would have been taken from around the kingdom, mutilated, and would serve as eunuchs, the ones who would keep guard over the harems of the king. Listen to Ian Dugan talk about this wicked plan. Probably very few, he says, would have resisted the royal summons. Many would have actually regarded it as a wonderful opportunity to have a comfortable, if pointless, existence. For many, it would seem almost like winning the lottery. It's, if that seems a bizarre notion in our culture where personal freedom is so idolized, think of the many people around us who pour their entire working careers into jobs they dislike or even despise in return for a comfortable salary and relative job security. The empire may have changed its shape and the kinds of demands it makes of us and of our children, but our world is not so very different after all. The empire of the world's wickedness may not be as blatant as this contest from the Persian empire, but it is still here among us today. The desires of the powers of this world want your total allegiance, your total life. It doesn't care what you really want. It doesn't care what your plans are. It doesn't care about the value and dignity of who you are as a human being. For pleasure and prestige and authority and power, it will ransack all of, oh, the, all of those things. It will violate all of those things. So we see here the empire's wickedness. That these young attendants go to the king and say, hey, let's just grab all the pretty girls in the kingdom and give them to you. See if you can find a queen that way. So that's what they begin to do. Now next we see uh, in this story, not just the empire's wickedness, but the exile's weakness. Here we're going to meet Mordecai and Esther. So let's read, starting in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So in this section, we see the exile's weakness, and particularly I'm thinking of Esther, but we could really think of all the exiles in this empire. But we, first we meet Mordecai. We see in verse 5, he's a Jew, and he is a descendant of Kish, who, according to 1 Samuel, is King Saul's father. Okay, that'll be important for later on. So now just store that away, that Mordecai is a descendant of the king of Israel. Over a hundred years before, 
His family was carried away against its will into the Babylonian empire in the years of Jeconiah, the king of Israel. But even after King Cyrus issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Israel, their family, Mordecai's family, remained in Susa. We're not told why they stayed. We don't know why these Jewish exiles didn't return back to their homeland when they could have. But we are told over and over that he is in exile. I mean, look again at verse 6. This family had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. I mean, this is not voluntary. (laughs) They were taken as captives, taken as exiles, put in a land that is not our home. And a hundred years or so later, that's where we find Mordecai in the citadel of Susa, living out his life as a Jewish exile. Next, we meet Esther. But we get two names for Esther. It's important for us to remember that Mordecai, his name, most scholars would say, is a cognate. It comes from the Persian god Marduk. So we see Mordecai's uh, name is a Persian name. But we see that Mordecai is a Jew. So there's this conflation between life as a, Babel, or life as a Persian and life as a Jew. We get the same kind of thing with Esther because we get her Hebrew name, her original name, which is Hadassah, whose name is also Esther. Esther's probably uh, comes from the Persian god Ishtar, which means star. So we have this young woman who is an orphan. Her mother and father have died and Mordecai was her cousin. So when Esther's parents died, Mordecai raised her as his own daughter. And as we walk through the story, we will learn that Hadassah, Esther, is a girl that is caught between two worlds. She is a girl who is caught between assimilating into the empire, like we talked about last week, uh, shedding your cultural and religious identity to be one with the world, or will she remain faithful as Hadassah, as this daughter of God? And unfortunately for her and for the setting of this story, we learn that she is lovely to look at and beautiful in figure. She is a surefire entry into the king's contest. And she was taken. Look again at verse 8. When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken. Did she go willingly? Was she resistant? We don't know. But whatever her intentions or her desires were, they are irrelevant to the fact that she was taken. What the narrator wants us to see in this story, what the writer of Esther wants us to see, is that her will was not considered. (laughs) Regardless of what she wanted to do or not do, she was taken. Esther not only found favor, in the sight of Haggai, the head eunuch. But as we read here in verses 8, 9, and 10, she won his favor. She pleased him. She was working the system. Contrast this. Last week, we saw Queen Vashti totally refusing the system of this world empire. You want me to come in and be lovely to look at and wear my crown before all your friends, Ahasuerus? No, I refuse. I'm not playing that game. Meanwhile, Esther here is winning favor and pleasing those in power over her. She is actively working towards a place of prominence among the young women. Of all the girls in the empire, 
This Jewish orphan, this exile is being moved to the top of the pack. And what we learn in verse 10 and 11 is that Mordecai, stepfather, cousin, she is, he is still trying to take care of Esther. So he tells her to remain secretive about her Jewishness. He checks on her daily by walking around to the court of the harem. The narrator doesn't indicate one way or another if hiding her identity and working the system is wise or wicked, brave or cowardly. We don't know. We don't know. And it's okay for us to not know. As we read this story, we want to read the story on the story's terms. We want to read Esther according to what the narrator, the author of Scripture, wants us to see. The narrator of Scripture is not so concerned about parsing out, is this good, is this bad, is this moral, is this immoral? What they are trying for, for, to show us, what they are trying to show you and me as we read, is that it is a dangerous place for the people of God. To live among the world empire as an exile is to live in danger. And yet, God is still working. God is orchestrating events to bring about a great salvation for his people, even in the midst of sketchy things, even in the midst of things that are probably at least pretty gray, if not immoral. So we see the exile's weakness as though she had a choice. She's living in this harem, waiting her turn to spend a night with the king to see what will happen. So we see not just the exile's weakness, but third, we find out Esther wins. We read of Esther's win. Look at verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations of the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. Pause. Okay, so just think for a year. These women are being subject to ointments and perfumes and cosmetics and beautifying products and oils. Some commentators would say that like some of it was basically being fumigated. Like you would just live in a room surrounded with all of this perfume or you would sit in a bath of these oils for a year. <laughs> this is a radical change that would take place. Verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem of, in the custody of Shag, Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So let's just pause there. These young women were taken from this harem. They would spend one night with the king to do whatever the king wanted to do. And then after that, they would move to another prison. Now they're no longer considered in the harem of the virgins. They're now considered a concubine. And their life as a concubine is to be a living doll. Their life is to sit and wait to see if the king ever wanted to show them any attention. They couldn't do anything else. Now, not the worst life in the world, some would say. You have food, you have a place to live, you have protection. But your life is pointless. If the king never remembers who you are, you are stuck here. And even if the king does remember who you are, your will in this is irrelevant. He is 
You are a, a plaything to him. You're an object to him for his pleasure and affection. You are not a person that he loves. And, and whenever you do age out of the harem of the concubines, you have been with the king. No man will ever pursue you. A, a future with a family is off the table because no one would dare go against even the previous desires of this king. So you're stuck. You're stuck unless you win. Look at verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. We see here in Esther's win that she is kind of being portrayed as the anti-Vashti. Like Vashti, she is beautiful, she's lovely to look at, but unlike Vashti, she is totally compliant, willing and waiting to please the king. And notice, she's winning favor. She's winning favor with all of those who see her. Character in the world empire is irrelevant. What is external is what matters. Not your character, not who you really are, just what you look like. If you're physically pleasing to look at, you're going to win favor. If you are attractive, you're going to win favor. It's the opposite of the kingdom of God. And here are the options for Esther. She either spends a night with a king, becomes a living doll in the concubine harem, or she becomes queen. She continues, like all the other young women, as an object of the king's power and pleasure. And yet, we read that the king loved Esther. He gave her grace and favor in his sight, set the royal crown on her head. Esther, this exile orphan, this weak and lowly girl, is now queen of the Persian Empire. But at what cost? And what does this entail for her? Because yeah, now she's queen, but she is now the chief object of the king's pleasure, just like Queen Vashti before her. She's loved for now. But what about later? We've already seen that the king is not to be trusted for consistency and wisdom. And finally, we read that a feast was given for Queen Esther. Gifts were given. Taxes were remitted. When the king is happy in the world empire, everyone's happy. When the king is satisfied, everybody can be satisfied. And now Queen Esther is in a position where she can be looked at, where she can be seen in the eyes of the world, but she is still weak and vulnerable. She seems to have power, she may not have any power at all. 
And so the question we ask as we read this story as a, as a person who is among the people of God, why is this even in here? <laughs> like, what are we even reading? What's the point of this story? Why Esther? Why now? What is this old thing about? Well, that's for later in the story. But what's important for us to see is through a, a sequence of unbelievable circumstances and a sequence of disobedience and sin, conniving and shrewd behavior of winning favor through physical beauty, doing things that are less than moral. God has orchestrated the mess of this life that we live in a broken world to let Esther, this orphan exile, bottom of the barrel in the kingdom of Persia, is now queen. And what we see next and finally tonight, today is that Mordecai, her cousin, her father, stepfather, is going to be placed in a similar position to be used by God later. Let's read verse 19 to see Mordecai's waiting. Mordecai's waiting. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Tiresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Translation, they wanted to kill him. They didn't want to bless him. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Or, your translation might say, impaled on a stake. Because that's how the Persians roll. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, why is this story in here? Very quick, I mean, as quickly as the narrator could possibly tell us, Mordecai discovered a plot to assassinate the king, told Esther... It was investigated, found out to be true. They were killed, and it was written down. Why is that in here? We need to see that what the author of Esther is doing is setting us up for where Mordecai needs to be when the real story of the book begins in Esther chapter 3. Mordecai was sitting at the gate, meaning that he was probably serving as some sort of civil official. He was living out his life in service to the empire, probably had read the scroll of Jeremiah that says, seek the welfare of the city as an exile. And as he had done before, he passed word along through Esther that something was going to happen. These two men, Bigthan and Tiresh, wanted to kill the king. They were found guilty and they were executed. And Esther made sure to tell the king, hey, Mordecai, this this Mordecai told me that this is going to happen. So Mordecai, This no-name Jewish exile, this lower civil servant, is now the savior of the king. Now usually, service to the king or the royal family in the Persian Empire would have been immediately and abundantly rewarded. We read at the very end, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king so that he would not forget to make sure to reward this benefactor who did such a good thing on behalf of the royal family and specifically on behalf of the crown. But for whatever reason, Mordecai is overlooked. 
He's not rewarded. He's not thanked. What seems to be coincidence over and over and over in this story, we know is the providential hand of God at work. But for now, we store away the fact that the king owes Mordecai a huge blessing. Sometimes life in the world empire will mean that faithfulness among the exiles will be overlooked. Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to country will be overlooked, not rewarded. Promises of blessing sometimes will ring hollow. So just a few concluding thoughts as we think about setting up Esther, the story through chapters one and two, as we get ready for next week when the real fun begins. First, we see that sin makes more of a mess than you think. Sin makes more of a mess than you think. I mean, why are God's people in this story in exile to begin with? Sin. Sins of kings and sins of nation have led to a broken nation being spread out all over the known world. This world empire, why is it that somebody like the king of Persia has so much power? Wickedness reigning over the earth, it's the result of the fall. Why is it that there's a a kingdom that has this wicked system of objectifying both women and men? Sin. Desire for power and pleasure and control and authority over all else and at other people's expense. That's sin. So sin makes more of a mess than you think. Next, the world empire tempts us to conceal our identity. We're not told, like I said earlier, we're not told whether or not it was wise or cowardly, good or bad, that Esther did not disclose that she was a Jew. We don't know if that has more to do with anti-Semitism in that day. We don't know if that has more to do with just being an ethnic minority or a religious minority, that she would have been looked at less favorably as one of the young women in the harem. We don't know. But what we do know is that we are tempted over and over in this life to conceal our true identity in order to get ahead in this world. So when a boss eventually asks you to do something unethical, will you conceal your faithfulness to Christ in order to get ahead? When someone asks you a difficult question about what you believe to be true about human identity, Will you conceal your faithfulness to Christ so that you might get ahead in that conversation or get ahead in that relationship or get ahead in that job? Concealing faithfulness to Jesus may get you ahead in this life, but at what cost to your soul? Jesus says something like this, that it's not good for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Next, as an encouragement to me and you, God uses the broken, the weak, the sinful, and the overlooked. If you think that you're unable to be used by God today because of past failures or even current struggles, remember that this story is showing us over and over and over again that God's providence means He is always at work. Perhaps your struggles and failures are precisely how God must mold you into what he needs for his purposes in your life and in the lives of others to be accomplished. Maybe you need to walk through this kind of suffering. Maybe you need to endure this kind of hardship. Maybe you need to have a life that is full of repentance 
from past failures so that you might be used by God in his providential hand. It isn't to say that our failures, our sins, our compromises are right and good, but it is to say that they weren't meaningless, that your suffering in this world, that your frustrations in this world aren't pointless. They're not random, that they are going to be used for good. Listen to Ian Dugan again. He says, consider, this is as a next, another point. <clears throat> consider what Esther was willing to put up with for the sake of the empire. She was willing to be poked and prodded, fattened and fumigated, perfumed and prepared over a period of 12 months for her one night stand in the royal bedroom. This is actually no worse than the preparation that many endure for, a, for the sake of a potential career in Hollywood or as a high flyer in business. Many are willing to endure almost anything in order to achieve the glittering prizes that this world has to offer. Pain often seems to be the necessary prerequisite for beauty and success. Yet how little are we willing to endure Christ's beauty treatments that prepare us for himself? Question for ourselves as we think about this text is this. What am I willing to surrender to God as he molds me and shapes me? Do I realize that he is actually doing all things for my good? Do I resist his molding and shaping? Or do I surrender to his work? Am I willing to discipline my body, as Paul says? Am I willing to be consistent and faithful in these things that matter eternally? Because again, it's not an issue of capacity. All of us, in some way or another, we are diligent and consistent in something. Usually for all of us, it's in something to do with getting ahead in this world. You study so hard to make the right grade or to get the right ACT score. You sacrifice relationships. You sacrifice social events. You sacrifice all of these things. You pay money to go to those things, to wear those clothes, to go to that place, to be around those people. Because your desire is for those kinds of prizes. And so the question, Esther, too, throws at us is are we willing to surrender anything for the sake of his kingdom? Like what if he's not giving you the ACT score that you need to get into that school because you're not going to be in this country very soon because he's going to call you to go be among the least and the lost? Will you give that up? What if those friends never reciprocate their affection for you as much as you want it, as, as much money as you've spent on it, as much, as much time as you've spent on curating your own life and look and presence on the internet so that you can live a life of obscurity in serving those who are also overlooked? Are you willing to serve Christ, to be shaped by him? And that may seem really heavy. And it is. But finally, we need to remember that nothing that we endure in this life is apart from what Christ has already suffered on our behalf. 
Our true and better husband, Jesus, prepares us for a better wedding and a better feast in a better kingdom. His cost for discipleship is unbelievably high, but it is one where we are never alone because our king, by his spirit, is always with us. So students, my prayer for you as we enter into the actual story of the book of Esther, that you'll keep this in mind, that this is not our home, that the things that we have to endure are incredibly difficult, incredibly hard, the cost is incredibly high, but Christ has paid it all. And he invites you and me, not through sinful, immoral means, but through the reception of his gift of grace to become co-heirs, to be a part of the kingdom, to receive a crown, to be invited to a feast, to enjoy his love. Let's pray. God in heaven, we praise you in giving us such a clear picture through the book of Esther that you work all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that what the world, what sinners intend for evil, God, you intend for good, and that even you take our brokenness, our sin, our frustration, our temptation, and you turn it around and you use it for your good, and for our good. So God, I pray that as we have time of discussion this morning, we could be honest about where we are. We could be honest about the tug that we feel the same way Esther felt. The temptations of this world, the allure of this world is strong. But we've been given a name. We've been given a new identity in Christ. And by your spirit, we pray that our faithfulness would be to you above all else. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.